All right, so the topic this week is uh, Wi-Fi patents and copyrights in halacha, and um, also halachic blind spots and how the rabbis deal with uh, evolving requirements of time. So to start with, we have to you know, figure out what is, uh, you know, what's the case. So let's say you are a, a Starbucks, and a person's taking up a table, and they didn't buy anything, and they've got their laptop out, and they've been working there, um, so the employee, or, you know, the employee comes over and says, you know, buy something or leave. It's within their rights, right? What if that person's standing on the sidewalk, outside, using their Wi-Fi? They're in public domain, but they're using Starbucks Wi-Fi. They're using Starbucks Wi-Fi outside. They're not taking up any space. Um, you, you do have to buy something in the store. I, you know, I know from personal experience that that's their requirement. Um, I do not know what specifically their terms of service say. I just know that they will come over to people and ask them to either buy something or leave. Um, but the reason, I mean, the logic for that is really because of the space being taken up by the person. Um, and what about if they're outside, though? Is that still an issue? Potentially. Depending on how strong their Wi-Fi signal is, yeah. There was actually a case of a, a man who was repeatedly kicked out of parking lots of Starbucks. And they, they prosecuted him for illegal Wi-Fi use. So in Halacha, is that within their rights? I, mean, I know that in that scenario, he was in their parking lot. So they do have the right to kick him out and, and say, do not come back. It might be a trespassing issue. But if you are on a sidewalk... Can they say you may not use our Wi-Fi? Well, uh, but just—I know you're stealing time. What time are you stealing? Well, I—I I know I've learned about going into a store pretending that you, or giving the, over the idea mm. that I might purchase something when I know I'm not. I'm just checking prices. Right. Well, and yes. That's wrong. If you ask a um, an employee to help you, but a store would love for you to come in and check prices, right? That's, that's, that's their goal. They want you to come in even without the intention the purchase. impression that you're going Right, exactly. Buy. It's what's called Geneva Dant, stealing, it's stealing mine, so you, you give them a false impression. But in this scenario, that doesn't really seemingly apply because you're not in the store even. You don't is go over to anybody. Use a, a their Wi-Fi is free. But it, it does it cost the them. Uh, so it's on the sidewalk. The sidewalk belongs to the city or the county. So it wouldn't be Connect to it know, actively. Yeah. You do. You, you do have to choose it from a list from, of options. From that Wi-Fi. 
Well, I guess it will connect automatically, but you still have to accept their terms and services you, every time. But then how is that computer going to do it? they got to do the same thing. They have to connect. They have to put in guests or whatever it is they're doing. No, they have an automatic Wi-Fi available, and you can connect to it at any time. They have no yeah, involvement in their... Hotel. hotel, you have to know what the... Yes, they, they're quite specific about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, they don't have a code on their Wi-Fi. They just have a. Yes, they're definitely paying um, for a provider. Just like you do. The question is, does it cost them per person? Most likely, they're going to get a Wi-Fi that's large enough for pretty much any amount of customers. So if one more person comes on, it doesn't impact them at all. Unless they're taking up space, like on a seat, or right. Then they're they're killing a sale. Possibly. Yeah. I guess the question is how does, how, like, do they pay by, like, data or do they pay by person connecting or, like, how does Starbucks pay for it, I guess? Would be That's the another good question. I, I can't imagine they pay per data. They, they pay I would for like, sure they have a... Oh, they pay it like we do? Probably not. I mean, it's just one price. Probably. I'm assuming they have a single, yeah. unlimited... Yeah. And it depends on how many customers they expect to, uh, you know, how long they, you know... Whatever, and then they, they go by that. If you yeah. have a hundred customers, yeah. then you pay that price. I guess it will also depend by like thing. how much data you yeah. like. Yeah, I was gonna say the only thing I could really think that could be a problem is if the person is doing something that takes so much that it slows down the Wi-Fi for everyone else. Right. Then I would think it's a problem. Right. But you have to be like really watching like five movies at once for that to be a problem. Or like something illegal. Or something like, illegal. Something. Right. I mean, that would be a problem. That would be all, the like, terms and conditions <laughs> issue in yeah. general. Yes. You could be inside and still do something illegal. Exactly. Right. Yeah. You could be inside yeah. and watch yeah. five movies. <laughs> well, I just think if you're sitting in one of their outside things, it's preventing somebody else who would be a paying customer from sitting there. But he didn't say you're sitting there. I said if. You're just saying, should you be standing up and using yeah. your, your tablet or whatever? So you could argue that a parallel to this case is borrowing something that will not uh, go down in, in value at all, not be negatively impacted. So you walk into a room and you see a, someone's watch on the table and you use it as a paperweight. You move it over and put it you know, on top of your papers, it doesn't blow away. Well, so that's, so you're taking their item picking it up, moving it, putting it down, and then returning it in the same state. Now, it's a very innocuous form of borrowing. The question is, is that halakhically permissible? Um, Rabbi Zera said there was a, there was a case where um, a, somebody gave, someone, gave something to someone else, gave a jug to someone else, and he says that he's liable for the damages to the jug. So the question is, why is he liable? So Abizair explains, we're dealing with a case where a storekeeper took a jug from a child in order to measure it for, uh, with it for others without permission. So a child comes in with a jug because, you know, no disposables. So you came, came with your own container to be filled up by the storekeeper. The storekeeper said, okay, give it. He takes it. And he said, oh, wait a minute. And he uses it to measure for someone else. Now, the child cannot give permission to the storekeeper to use the item because it's not the child's, it's the parent's. But it doesn't negatively impact the jug at all. You know, you give it back to the child, no one will be ever you know, aware of the issue. 
So Rabbi Zayir says that's an issue in and of itself. That right there is a form of theft, borrowing without permission. And the rabbis and Rabbi disagree with regard to a borrower who takes an item without the owner's knowledge. One stage, Rabbi Huda holds that the storekeeper is considered like a borrower. And once he returns the jug, he's no longer responsible for it. Rabbi Huda says if you borrow something like that, you have a responsibility to guard the item, and you're liable for any negative impact that happened to the item, but it's not theft. In one stage, the rabbis hold that someone who borrows without owner's permission is a robber and is obligated to return the item to its owner. Therefore, the storekeeper must pay for the jug that the child broke before it reached the father. So if that child takes the jug, walks home with it, and then breaks it, the storekeeper would be liable. Why? Because when he took it from the child, he was essentially stealing it. And when you steal an item, you have a responsibility to return it to the owner in a safe manner. And you didn't. You gave it to a child. You've become responsible for that item by misusing it and stealing it, in a sense. So that storekeeper would have to pay if the child broke it on the way home. But the rabbis and Rabbi Yehuda disagree about this. And who would you follow if it's a rabbi's versus Rabbi Yehuda? Rabbis is plural and Rabbi Yehuda is singular. So we're going to follow the majority. And that's what the Shulchan Aruch says. The Shulchan Aruch says, even one who takes via borrowing without the knowledge of the owners is called a thief. So in that paperweight watch case, it is a form of theft. It's one that's pretty easy to, to, to rationalize and, and doesn't seem so morally problematic, but it is luckily a form of theft. Um, and the Shulchan Aruch also says that the same is true of a lender. Um, so let's say you lend someone money and the guy gives you collateral to hold on to. Um, you're responsible for any damages that happen to that collateral. Um, and as soon as you use it, as soon as you take it without to use it, you become a thief. And therefore, you're liable for responsibilities the way a thief would be, which is more strict than a borrower. So again, even if something was given to you with permission to hold on to, and you use it for a different use than the person intended for you to use it for, that moment that you take it to use it for the you know, thing you weren't given permission for makes you into a thief of source. So you could argue that the same applies to this Wi-Fi case, which is that it's true that you're not causing any negative impact. But when you take someone else's thing without permission... That is, in and of itself, inherently a form of theft. But there are exceptions to this rule. What's the exceptions? If you know for certain that the owner is not particular against one using his item, then it's permitted to use it without the explicit permission. If we can assume that the owner will not care, that is good enough. Now, how do you know if the owner is going to care or not? So you could argue that the owner is not going to care. And if you don't care, it's not considered borrowing without permission. Um, this small, by the way, you can, it's only if you're going to return it in the same state, but you can never return something in a separate state, even if you assume the owner might you know, not care. Um, the Shochanar says something interesting. He says, items borrowed for a mitzvah that do not get damaged, such as a talit or a sitter, may be borrowed since it can be assumed that the owner would want a mitzvah to be done with his possessions. So specifically with Torah items used for a mitzvah, we have a positive assumption that you would like for someone to take your things and do something good with it. We assume that if you own a sitter, you're probably a fan of that type of use. 
and therefore you could use it. Now it's interesting to note that Talat and Siddur do wear out. Right? It's not like it's going to have no impact on the long-term viability of a sitter. If you use it, it's going to slowly get ruined. So what it is saying is that when it says that something it damages the item, it doesn't mean any form of damage. It means beyond normal use damage, pretty much. Because otherwise, even a sitter, you would say, well, you know, you turn the pages, the binding loosens, and the pages start wearing out. But that's not considered uh, within someone's mind. They're not worried about that. <clears throat> so, there is an argument. Again, it's really hard to know what the owner's going to think. But let's say in the case of Starbucks again. Why are they providing the service? Why do they have Wi-Fi in their stores? They want people there. They want people there, there? They want people there buying. Buying, yeah. So, when you stand outside the store and use their Wi-Fi, it's true that it doesn't impact them. It's true that they probably don't mind that the Wi-Fi is being used, but they do mind that you're using the service which is intended to pull people into the store and get them to buy things without actually buying things. So, in their mind, it's like, oh, I kind of wanted you to come in and buy something, so when you stand outside the store, you're kind of misusing the Wi-Fi. The Wi-Fi is supposed to be a marketing tool. It's true that you are going to stand outside the store, you know, and wonder how many people will stand outside of the store for how long. Um, so maybe you could argue that even then they'll say, well, it's still a positive benefit for us because people will come to right outside of our store. And that's good enough. Maybe eventually they'll come inside, especially because it probably doesn't affect their bottom line at all. We'll have to keep people out of those tables as well. <laughs> so it's, this is the difficult part, is it's really hard to evaluate what the owner is thinking. And I guess there's arguments on both sides, both sides of this. Maybe they would be happy with people using their Wi-Fi outside. But uh, let's go one step further, which is what obligation does Starbucks have to provide Wi-Fi. So there's um, an interesting case. Um, the Gemara says <clears throat> that if an animal derives benefit, the owner of the animal pays for the benefit that it derives. So a cow comes over and eats some of your flowers. Got to pay for those flowers. So the Gemara says, Rav Chisisete Rami Barachama. Last night we were in the synagogue and you missed it. You were not there and we were learning exceptional, exceptional matters. It's really rubbing it in here. You missed it. Remember what said, like, so what was it? What exceptional matters did you discuss? So Christus said, we were talking about somebody who lives in another person's courtyard without his knowledge or permission. Must he pay him rent or does he not need to pay him rent? This is a squatter who's living in someone else's property that is empty. That is completely abandoned. Does he have to pay rent for the time spent there? If he doesn't go in there, it's going to remain empty anyway. And we're not talking about where he damages the property, because then he'd have to pay for damages, but we're just talking about usage, usage of the property itself. Sigmar says, what are the circumstances of this question? If we say that the case concerns a court that could not stand to be rented out, 
the squatter would not have lived there, the owner would have kept it vacant, then the man squatting there is someone who would not have rented other living quarters because he has other lodgings available for free. Then it is a case where this one, the squatter, does not derive benefit. And that one does not suffer a loss. In that case, no payment is necessary. So if it could not have been, been rented out anyways, then there's no loss. And since it's, um, you know, it's, it's not loss, there's no benefit to the other guy either, therefore you, there's no payment that has to be paid. So rather, it must be one that, that stands to be rented out. But if it's one that stands to be rented out, then there's a clear loss because now it's not being rented out in the interim. Then you would for sure have to pay. So what's the scenario where they're arguing about whether or not he has to pay? So the Gemara explains, it's necessary to raise the dilemma in a case of a courtyard that does not stand to be rented out, but the man squatting there would have rented other living quarters had he not squatted in this property. So it's, it's not a homeless person who wouldn't been able to pay anyway. It's a person that w- is saving themselves money by not renting somewhere else. So do we say, since you saved money elsewhere, therefore you have to pay this guy? Or do we say, that guy didn't lose anything because it wouldn't have been rented out either way? What's that luck in this case? Is the squatter legally able to say to the owner of the courtyard, what loss have I caused you? Or would you not have rented it out anyway? Or perhaps the owner of the courtyard is legally able to say to the squatter, you benefited. And as you benefited, therefore you have to pay. So the Rebbe said to him, this is actually an old, uh, old question. This is not new. It's mentioned in a Mishnah already. So Rav Chitza said, which Mishnah are you talking about that talks about this case? We were discussing it last night. We didn't think of the Mishnah. What Mishnah? So Rami Rechama said that there's a, a, you know, serve me and I'll tell you. So Rav Chitza took his scarf and wrapped it around him. He put his, he, you know, dressed Rami Rechama and he said, if an animal derives benefit, the owner of the animal pays for the benefit that the animal derived. This demonstrates that one who derives benefit must pay for the benefit he derives even if the injured party is not entitled to a payment for his loss. So benefit is the purpose here, not the loss. The Mishnah says if your animal derives benefit, you pay for what you benefited. It doesn't say you pay for what loss was caused. It says you pay for what the animal benefited. And that's a, a fine difference. It's saying that what you pay for is not what loss happened to the other animal, but rather what you could have, what you benefited. Now you don't have to feed your animal these things. How much would it cost you to feed your animal? Whatever. So, what does it tell us about our case? If there is no loss to someone else, and there is a benefit, then you would actually have to pay. The benefit is what matters. So let's say the cost of the Wi-Fi is buying a latte. That is a loss. That is a loss of benefit. So therefore, you would be, you would be obligated to pay the cost of an item in Starbucks to Starbucks if you use it in their store. Even if the store is empty, really. This is a loss of benefit. And when you use the Wi-Fi, you benefited the value of the Wi-Fi, which apparently costs. <clears throat> so, I don't think too many people know this. Yes. That's why they have to walk around and kick people out of the store. Now, what happens if there is no loss to the person 
and the person is not benefiting in another way. So you would not have rented out the other property. Let's say you have, you have an, a vacant area that cannot be rented out. And the workers are coming in a week. A homeless guy comes over to you and says, here's upfront payment for cleaning. Can I use your apartment for a week? You can't use it. You can't rent it out either way. You've, you've got your bases covered with a payment up front. Can you say no? There's no loss to you. There's a benefit to him. You can't charge him either way because he's not going to rent anywhere else. What's the law? What do you mean he's not going to rent anywhere else? He's homeless. He can't afford rent somewhere else. He's asking to use your property for free. So you can't argue that, hey, he's benefiting the value of rent because he wouldn't have rented either way. So according to all opinions, in that case, you can't charge the guy. It's a courier that does not stand to rent it out, and he's, the man is not benefiting because he wouldn't have been able to rent it in another place. So he's not saving money. But he's running that place. Yeah, he's, he's using that place, but he's not saving money. You can't say, he can't, you can't say to him, well, you would have spent $100 and then down the street, give me that $100. Because he wouldn't have gone down the street. He would have slept on the sidewalk. So, halakhali, you can't charge him in that scenario. He doesn't have to pay anything. Now, the question is, are you obligated to say yes to his request? Since this is all halakha, are we talking about someone who's Jewish? Does it matter if he's Jewish or not Jewish? It does not matter. Okay. Um, generally, basically, every law of um, you know, monetary rules are going to be applying equally. They're more of like, how would you form a halakhic society? If you know, the Sanhedrin was in charge... How, what laws would they put in place? Almost always they're going to apply across the board. There are some exceptions, but generally across the board. But suppose he messes up the place. Well, if he messes up the place, then you can charge him for damages. That's why I try to give a case where you're, you don't have to worry about that. Because you could always argue, well, I'm worried that he'll mess up the place. But that's why, you know, he gives you enough money that you're not worried about that. Or, I don't know, he gives you enough that you'd, you'd rent anybody. I don't know. In a scenario where you're sure, you're sure that you're not going to suffer a loss... And you're definitely not going to stand to gain. What obligation do you have to this person? So there was a case of a certain guy who died. Sorry, a man who bought, um, he bought land. And he had land that was adjacent to his father's property. His father had a field. He bought a field right next to it. And the father passed away. And his estate was going to be divided up among the children. And they were just, you know, picking fields and giving them out. And he said, I want that field that's right next to mine because then I could just take, take down the boundary. I got one extended field. I can have the same workers work the whole thing. I can watch it all at once. It's a huge benefit for me. It's not a loss to any of you because all the fields are the same pretty much. It's only a benefit to me. And they said, well, no, we, well, we want to divide it up the way we want to divide it up. So they brought the case to Rabbah. And Rabbah said, in this case, the court will compel them to give that field to the son who lives along the border, who's got a field along the border. Why? Because he is benefiting and no one else is losing out. And in any scenario where one person stands to gain and no one else stands to lose out, we force the, per- the person to give to the person that gains. It's called Kaifin Almidas Sedon. Well, that's too bad that they have to force them. Yes, exactly. That's true. Kaifin Almidas Sedon means we, we force people to avoid the um, attribute of Sedon. The attribute of Sedon was. I want you to lose out. It was sadistic. 
desiring the pain of another. So we say that to avoid that, we, the basin has a right, the court has a right to impose laws. And there's an interesting law about this. Um, there's a famous law of a Hebrew slave. There's a few ways that a Jewish person can become a slave. Um, he could steal and not have money to pay back. He can sell himself into slavery. Those are basically the only ways. And in that scenario, he's, slave, he's a slave for a maximum of six years until the Shemitah. And during that time, there's many laws that limit the way that the master can treat the slave. And this is one of them. So Tzadna Brisa. Pasuk says, the verse in Deuteronomy says, because he fares well with you, kitov lo imach, because he likes it with you. This is talking about a, a slave who does not want to leave during the Shemitah. The year comes for freedom, and he says, I'd rather remain a slave. So he gets his ear pierced, and he can remain a slave until the Jubilee year, until Yilvel. So the verse says, because it was good with you. What does it mean, because it was good with you? So uh, the word is imach with you. Why say with you? This teaches us that the slave must be treated with you, equal to you. In food, and drink. That means that you cannot feed your Jewish slave different food than you make for yourself. Whatever is for dinner has to go to him as well. The Bryce continues. That means you should not be in a situation where you eat fine bread and he eats inferior bread. There can't be a situation where you drink aged wine and he drinks new wine because aged wine is better. There could not be a situation where you sleep comfortably on bedding made of soft sheets and he sleeps on straw. Here the sage stated, anybody who acquires a Hebrew slave is like acquiring a master for himself. So it's different for a non-Jew. Different for a non-Jew, yes. Non-Jews, Non-Jewish slaves are acquired through war, and they do not have the same protections. What does Barat mean? So the Mishnah was compiled by Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi um, in about the year... I think it was about 300 or something like that. Maybe 200. Um... And it was a collection of, all, of a lot of different sayings from the temple time, temple era, basically. And all the statements from that time period that didn't make it into the Mishnah proper are called Baragzot. And in the Talmud, it kind of like collects ones that were missing or that are important. And it puts them like, the Mishnah said something, well, there is a Baragzot that's relevant, and it discusses that. that. It's the same time period as the Mishnah, but it was just collected okay. later in the Talmud, which Talmud was, you know, hundred years after the Mishnah times. In the Bible, when they refer to slaves, were they Hebrew slaves? So it's actually complicated. It's, it's hard to tell always because it doesn't always specify. Um, it really depends on the context. It usually is referring to Jewish slaves most of the time. Um, there are exceptions, and they're based on context. But just the word slave they itself... They became slaves for a reason. It wasn't like because they conquered the land. Non-Jewish slaves? No, Jewish slaves. Jewish slaves could only become slaves if they stole and could not pay back, or if they sold themselves into slavery to cover yeah, a debt. Yeah. Those are the only options. Non-Jewish slaves were acquired in war, generally. Wait, so how, did you, how were you obligated to treat non-Jewish slaves? Worse. Um, basically, um, first of all, there was no time, time frame of freedom. Um, and you did not have the same obligations to... Um, give them the same standard of living and um, there's a, a kind of unclear limitation for Jewish slaves that says you cannot give them work that is pricha pricha means pricha is when something crumbles but it's, it's work that breaks you down 
very hard labor. But that limitation does not apply to um, non-Jewish slaves. So the Rambam, in the last halacha on the laws of slaves, he says um, basically that there's, there's, very, there's not so many limitations on what can be done with non-Jewish slaves. But um, a person who treats their slaves negatively is betraying the character of the Jewish people, basically what he says. So you're saying that even though you can treat the non-Jewish slave differently from the Jewish slave, you shouldn't? Basically. That's what he's saying. It's not a law, though. Um, you should remember he's human. He's right. So the, the Jewish slave was, was hard to keep in many ways. Um, you had to find labor that they could do that would pay their keep. Um, and the, you acquired a master over yourself in a sense. And Tosas is interesting. Of, you had to send them off, I think, with a blanket. Yes. When you, when you leave him, he has to leave. You have to give him a lot of things. Um, there's, the Talmud says you have to give him enough material goods to support himself when he leaves. He can't be left, you can't leave him and pen, penniless when he leaves. Well, who's the one that, uh, the, the, there was a thing in the Bible that says he, uh, he wanted to stay, so he put an awe uh, on his... Jewish slave. Yeah. That was a Jewish slave. Yeah, because they would be freed every seven years. Yeah, every seven years. Right. Um, so the, the statement of the Talmud was, anybody who acquires a slave has acquired a master over himself. So this is a similar, seemingly problematic line because... There's no slave, there's no master over yourself, you're just equal. Where's the master over yourself? That's perfectly equal. So the, uh, the, the Tosfa says, um, it must be referring to a case, as mentioned in the Yashami. The master has only one pillow. In that scenario, he must give it to the slave. He cannot sleep on it, for then he is not fulfilling the verse that requires him to live on equal terms. And if he does not give it to the slave, this is considered the character trait of Sodom, to prevent others from benefiting, even if it not, does not damage you. Therefore, the master must give the pillow to the slave. Therefore, it's considered as if he has acquired a master over himself. So how is it a master over yourself? If you have one of anything, and you have a Jewish slave, you have to give it to the Jewish slave. You can't keep it, because by keeping it, you're not filling the verse properly. But you can't um, not give it to him, because you don't stand to benefit, because you can't use it. He stands to benefit. So by not giving it to him, you're the character trait of Sodom. Sadistic. So you can't do that. And as you know, we know, the court will force people to follow the, the attribute of Sodom. To not follow the attribute of Sodom. So therefore, the master must give that one thing that he has, whatever it is, to the slave. So let's say you, um, you go over to somebody who has a Jewish slave. And you say, here, I bought you a nice coffee. You give it to him. Well, now you've got to give it to the slave. Better bring him two. Because otherwise, you can't keep him. How, how does the master not stand to benefit from the stuff? He can't use it because he, he and the slave must have the same standard of living. So he can't, keep it, can't use the pillow himself. He has one pillow. Then the slave will not have a pillow when he's not filling the verse. So he must be in discomfort rather than using the pillow. But if he doesn't give it to the slave, then he's just being sadistic because the slave can use it even if he cannot. Because of the requirement to treat them fairly, slave has to get it first, and if he doesn't give it to the slaves, then he's just being rude. Exactly. Cool. 
so seemingly it would look like um, it would seem like you would be able to a, a, you know, a homeless man could come over to the owner of an empty building and say you must let me sleep there you don't stand to lose anything I stand to gain and the court would force that any unrentable home would have the opportunity to be filled um, the Ramah writes though he says this specifically applies in the case where the squatter is already dwelling there but the squatter cannot force the owner to allow him to live there. Although generally we force people to allow others to benefit if there's no loss to them, that only applies in the case where the owner has no ability to derive benefit himself. But here he could rent out the space if he so desired. He just does not desire to do so now. So we do not force him to allow the squatter to live there for free. So if the owner could in any way benefit from it, if he could choose to live there himself, that's enough of a reason for him to say no. But he can't kick him out. And this is where squatter's rights come in. You don't ask, but you can go in. But again, this is only if the owner could benefit from it. And that's therefore there's a loss. So in the Wi-Fi case, this limitation does not apply. Because, you know, it doesn't make a difference to the, to the Starbucks owners. So it seemingly would be an obligation on Starbucks to provide Wi-Fi for anybody to use it outside. And to not walk around the building and tell people to get off their Wi-Fi. The court could seemingly force them. And what happens if you have a neighbor who lives close enough to you to get your Wi-Fi signal? Yeah, they do too. <laughs> and they came over to you and they said, I heard you're leaving for the weekend. Okay? And I'm not going to affect your bandwidth because you're not going to be here. And you're out for the month. That reminds me of the, uh, what's that program? Right, generally not a good idea. So I have a question. If, if I have an unoccupied apartment and I'm going to rent it or sell it, and somebody comes to me and says, I want to live in your unoccupied apartment, how can I be obligated? You, you, you definitely cannot. There's many good reasons. First of all, you could live there yourself right now. Second of all, it stands to rent out. You want to rent it out. And third of all, there's a huge risk that the person will not leave right. or mess up the thing. In the hypothetical where you're certain that that's not the case, then you would be obligated to. Because um, I would simply tell them I'm going to be showing the apartment. Exactly. I don't want you to be here. Exactly, 100%. And in general, you know, you could just say, I, I don't want you to be there. I'm, I'm using it for whatever. There might be something else. Um, there's a house on the corner, uh, a fly cliff, and uh, Rock Springs. And it's uh, it's vacant. It was on fire one time, but it, uh, the person who owns it is living in the brick house um, caddy corner from from that house, and the um, there's nobody living there. Nobody's ever going to live there. He just he just has not bothered to tear it down, you know. And we keep wondering when is he going to have the house torn down? And it's, it's like so he could have a, a 
person in there in the same way you're talking about because he's not he's not gonna rent it out. He's he eventually he's going to tear it down, but he's been waiting years and years to do right. that and he hasn't done it yet. So but that's yeah, exactly. the case. Like the, the rub about. is always gonna be involved in these cases because there's so many factors to figure out what is a loss. So let's say you have a vacant building that you're not planning, you're going to have to tear it down at some point, whatever. Um, but if homeless people live in there, it will affect property values and safety across the neighborhood. There's always this, you know, cost-benefit value. Yeah. But it is clear that if there is definitely no loss, then you would be obligated. So in the case of a neighbor who comes over and says, can I please use your Wi-Fi while you're not home, and, and you already have a guest account, you're not worried about them hacking you or whatever, um, there would be an obligation to say yes. But in the case of the squatter, you have to, you have to go to the person and say, may I live in this house? Um, because I know you're not going to rent it out, so therefore he, he's obligated to let the squatter stay in that house. Right, but taking it without talking to them is then borrowing without permission. Which, but the, that, that does happen, though, because uh, it was on the news a couple of years ago where this woman occupied this very nice neighborhood, really very nice big homes, and um, the, the person was no longer living there, but he hadn't bothered to sell the home yet. So somebody came in and squatted there, and so the law said because she squatted there, you can't kick her out. So the neighbors wanted to kick her out because she didn't belong there, but yet they couldn't because she, uh, she had a right uh, squat is squat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's that's so, at this point, this is basically where where we are. I'm not a rov, and I didn't see any clear, you know, rulings. But it would appear to me that outside of Starbucks, you would be allowed to use their Wi-Fi if you're on a public street, because we do force for. You know, th- things that are no loss to them. Um, but there is a, almost a blind spot in halach in regards to copyright law. That's what we're going to get into now. So there's a halacha in Shulchan Aruch. Somebody steals a shofar and blows it on Rosh Hashanah. He's fulfilled his obligation, even if the owner's never despaired of getting it back, and therefore he never luckily acquired it through theft. Generally, for any mitzvah, if you steal to, to do the mitzvah, the mitzvah doesn't count. It's called the mitzvah haba'a A positive mitzvah that happens through something negative. So you steal a matzah. And then it's you know, bad news. It's a mitzvah haba'a You steal a lulav. It doesn't work. But for a shofar, you steal it and then blow it, it works. Even if you never acquired it halachically. Why? Because the theft does not apply to the intangible objects such as sound. You stole the shofar, but the sound that the shofar makes is not stealable. Hmm. But you're holding an object. The object is definitely stolen. Oh. But the mitzvah is not to have a shofar. Ah. Like an, a lulav, the mitzvah is the lulav itself. Right. The mitzvah of, of the shofar is to hear the sound of the shofar. Are digital products considered tangible or intangible? Exactly. <laughs> Are they tangible or intangible? Most Rabbanim say that they're not tangible. Um, they're information. They're like sound. 
similar thing is even um, even if it's even fire is not considered tangible. It doesn't it doesn't it has no limit. It's it's eminently copyable. You know, one fire can make an infinite amount of fire. So if you walk over to someone's candle and light your candle from it, it's not a form of theft. It's intangible. So where's the limitation here? The big the, the collapse of, of the music industry, not really, but the, one of the collapses of the music industry was Napster, early 2000, people just copying stuff. And it was, it was a new phenomenon, and now it's basically the norm, now they have just streaming services to avoid it. Um, but was that halakhically okay? Is the music, the sound, owned? It feels like theft. It feels like theft, doesn't it? Well, it's copyrighted. So therefore, it is a theft. Mm. Well, because the law of the land says it's a theft. Ah, exactly. Now, halakhically, it's hard to find a source for why that would be theft. Sound is not ownable. But the words, but the, the tune, but the music, which is the sound, and the words in the music, all intangible. They're all owned. They're copyrighted. They are copyrighted, but halakhically, copyright doesn't have. Uh, there's no section of the Talmud. There's no section of Jewish law that says copyright. How many take it to the base Well, we'll talk about that. It's, it, there is in there. Oh, a higher Exactly. Yeah. I should have told that Bob he's died at one point. I was just thinking of that. Mm-hmm. We, I, had, I uh, owned a skateboard park many years ago, about 10 years before it became in vogue. It was the first indoor skateboard park in the United States. And we played music so the kids could, the guy came in, and he said, you owe us for music. I said, what do you mean I owe you for music? He says, every time you play a song, you have to pay us a royalty. And since he insisted, I'm pretending to be mocking. We paid him. But that's interesting. But I could have said to him, now that I know. Oh, don't worry, we're not done yet. (laughs) Don't jump the gun. Um, but, you know, sound is one thing, but over human history, I mean, music has been a relatively minor part of our development. A much larger part of development is professional uh, techniques and inventions. People became very wealthy because of their inventions. And sometimes even, you know, just using specific materials. Thomas Edison is famous because he figured out the right material to use for his filaments. That's what it is. So what right does he have over that? You know, there's a famous story of Thomas Edison and, and Nikola Tesla where Nikola Tesla had the, the um, Chicago Fair and he got the, the contract to put up the lights for it. And then a few months before, Thomas Edison said, I'm sorry, you cannot use my light bulbs. They're mine. I made them. They're patented. They're mine. And you can't use them. So there was like few months left at the fair, so Tesla invented fluorescent lights. And he produced them, 200,000 lights, and he lit the fair. Um, but the point is that there, we have this idea all over, is that people own things. So the Marsham says that a person does not have ownership over professional technique development because it's intangible. Marsham says, straight up, intangible stuff you don't own. A technique, a knowledge of how to make a filament, it's not owned. 
you can make filaments and you'll own the filaments, but anyone could just reverse engineer them and make them. And there's no issue with that, according to the Marasham. The Igor's Moshe says a person does have ownership over his mental creations. But what's the source? What's the reasoning? There's no clear halacha for why it is. And in fact, halacha does seem to say that something intangible is not ownable. So the first one is um, benefits and loss. So the Nodibi Huda was, was uh, asked a question. There was a, a man, a scholar, who wrote a commentary on the Mishnah. And he hired a printing house to typeset a new font of the Mishnah with his commentary on the side. So he printed it because he wanted his commentary, but the actual typeset of the Mishnah was also new and clear and, you know. So after the first run, the printer took out the commentary section and reprinted it with just the typeset of the Mishnah itself. And began selling those. The scholar came and said, I hired you to make the Mishnah with this typeset. The typeset belongs to me. You can't print it. He said, yeah, but, you know, we do a run, and then the typeset, all the letters, the actual pieces are all mine. You know, the printing presses back, and they were just these, you know, a lot of little metal pieces, presses. So they're mine, and I just left them where they are, and I'm using them. And I'm not even using your information. I know you, you, you wrote your commentary, but this is the Mishnah. You know, it doesn't belong to you. So Nodi Bahuda was asked a question, this question, and he said he, that the printer had to pay the scholar. Why? It's true that the scholar does not own the typeset. He doesn't own the actual pieces. But there is a loss to the scholar because people will now buy the Mishnah without his commentary. He made the beautiful typeset to attract people to his commentary. He hired him to at least to make the beautiful typeset. So now that you're selling it separately, people will buy less of his copies. And that's a loss to the scholar. So even though he doesn't own this typeset and he doesn't own that stuff, copyright is inherent in the idea of one person losing. So anytime the person loses, that's enough of a reason. This is a little bit of a stretch, but this is what he ruled. The next one is the idea of Hasagat Gvul. Which is that people have, in some way, an ownership over their territory, their territory for business. And we even, you know, even in American law, there is this type of rule. Poaching customers is, is uh, there's different ways to do it that are legal and illegal. Um, but if a, if a person owns a, a shop, let's say an indoor skate park, he owns an indoor skate park, and he's got all these customers coming in, and someone, another Jewish person comes and decides to open up another indoor skate park right next door. So halakhically, you could say to the person, you can't go there. You're too close to me. This is my area, my territory in business, and you are stealing my customers. And this is uh, learned from the law of nets, fishing nets, where a guy has a fishing net. You can't put your fishing net just upstream from that guy. He's claim the area. So he says, when you use someone else's um, music, even though they don't own the music, you are still encroaching on their business territory. Reason two. Again, a little bit of a stretch. It's not like clearly that there's a territory here. Number three. This guy is much more straightforward. This is the base. He says, well, there is no copyright in Jewish law. 
but we follow the law of the land. So civil law has copyright law, and that's good enough. The third, the, sorry, the fourth argument is an interesting one. He says that there's something called a limited sale, where you only sell some parts of it. When a person sells a DVD or a book, you don't actually sell the intellectual property to the person. You're selling only the, the physical DVD. What's the problem with this argument? You're implying that intangible objects have ownership. Because otherwise, what are you not selling? Intellectual property? What is intellectual property? But either way, modern halacha is, halacha view is that there is intellectual ownership of property for almost everything. For any of these reasons. Almost every book up front mm-hmm. will say... Yeah. Jewish have to books. get permission to copy or what to yeah. do something. Now, the one, uh, I guess, a little issue is in Torah works. So the Talmud has a statement which says that God gave us the Torah for free, and therefore we should give the Torah for free as well. When we have Torah to share, we shouldn't charge for it. So how are rabbis everywhere charging? Because of their time, basically. Cost them. But if you make a halachic work, a Jewish work, a work of Jewish law or something, Torah, and someone copies it, um, perhaps there is no reason why you should be able to you know, stop a person because Torah should be given for free. You're talking about the scroll, right? Well, any or, form of Torah. Or a chumash. A chumash, but also a book of the Talmud, you know? So it's Torah. You have to buy it? Ah, so the cost of printing costs money. And you have, they have to be recouped for that. And whatever, you know, the people that are working there, there's all sorts of costs. But, um... So that's what we're paying. That's what you're paying for. The intellectual property itself is not owned because it's Torah. And Torah is not ours, it's God's. And God gives it to us for free, and we have to give it to others for free. So... Even in this sense, it's harder, in fact, to apply these reasons. You could still apply the law of the land copyright. But in many older Jewish works, uh, this was not, um, not looked at like that. It wasn't looked at as a good thing to do, to invoke law of the land. It was a more of a last resort than a first option. So if you open up the Tanya, Alter Rebbe's book, he has a bunch of approbations. People who looked over the book and gave their, you know, their go-ahead to read the book, talk about how amazing it was, and he apparently asked them to, inf- to rule that there should be a five-year copying ban, a five-year printing ban. Before that time period, printing was the sole property of the original printers. They had rights to all the sales of the books. And no one else could print for five years. But after five years, it was up again, anyone could print it. That's the case today. A person who wrote the book or wrote the commentaries, they could not get paid for what they did? It was the printer who got paid? It was the printer. Now, I don't know what um, arrangement the, the Alter Rebbe had with the printers. Made everybody you know. for Yeah. But I, I think that it wasn't, that wasn't his pro- big issue. Like, I don't know if that was his, okay. his thought process. Now, you definitely could make a, a deal with the printers. But... 
Um, this was a book of uh, you know monumental value, and they would not give her more than five year ban. And this is pretty common: is that that eternal copyright, you know, inherited copyright, where uh, you know Disney stuff is copyrighted for the, till the end of time, doesn't exist really in halacha. It was only limited bans, and that was really for just to justify the printing itself. If within that five-year period um, they could print and reprint, that way it makes it worthwhile for the printing to happen in the first place. But the goal is that this intellectual property should become public domain because really it belongs to everyone. It doesn't just belong to one person. My finger means something. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, when, I, when I taught school... Um, they gave um, musical plays uh, quite a bit. Well, they had to, uh, to, to in order to use this, the particular songs they were using, they had to go to the uh, people and, and ask them, can we use your songs for, for our play? Because um, otherwise it would have been fitting against the law if they used it without knowledge of the ones who, who, who did the, the, the music. Exactly, because music is copyrighted. Yeah. Now, in, in Halacha, there still would be a copyright for music. I'm not sure how long the ban would last, if it would be an eternal ownership, probably not. But it still would apply in some sense. So you'd still have to pay whatever the guy's name was. I don't know if he actually represented anybody, but um, you know, you'd still have to pay him technically. Now, what you find here is that there is a blind spot in halacha, in a sense. Copyright law is missing. Why? Why is copyright law missing? It's a hard question to answer, and I don't know for sure what the answer is, because uh, you know. But I theorize that copyright law is a concession to the the need um, of people to have financial incentives in order to invent things. In an ideal world, there wouldn't be copyright law. If you have something good to share, you just share it. That would be the positive. You know, a, a technique everyone can benefit from it. You have you, you discovered a new medicine? Well, then make the pills, please, and let everyone else make the pills. Why should one company be making the pills? It's just that we have an issue where R&D costs money, and people are, you know, we want to incentivize people to invent things, but it's not ideal. So if we enshrine it in the Torah, in law, it implies that this is the perfect world, the perfect system. The perfect system is that the person who creates it owns it. When truly the person who creates something is really discovering what God created in the world. You know, that idea, God made it in the first place, and they're just uncovering that. And it really belonged to everyone in the first place. So it's almost a concession to our flawed humanity to have copyright laws. And that's why the Torah doesn't say it in itself. But everyone kind of realizes the need for it, and that's why there's no rabbis who say that there's not going to be any copyright law at all. Either going to follow the law of the land, and maybe that's the value of the law of the land to put in those concessions, or you know, limited sales or whatever answers we give. But it's often possible that the Torah doesn't say something because we don't want to bronze something that should eventually disappear, especially with Torah. Where really we should, you know, have a a stipend system where everyone gets an infinite amount of of stuff and can teach everyone everything else for free. I make music for everyone else for free because everyone has infinite stuff. Everyone 
tree. Yeah. That is where the world is going. We just need to work on the production aspect, not just the giving aspect, but otherwise we're good. Oh, we have to work on who is it in charge of the giving. Well, imagine that you made a machine that could uh, rearrange molecules into any form. We would have infinite stuff. What would be the need, then, for to worry about who's giving to who? Everyone buys a machine in their home, and you're done. Everyone gives a machine. Everyone's you know, given a machine. Boring. It is quite boring. But maybe that's the perfect world. Then we start working on arts and, and ideas and interesting music and well, games. It's the 3D still around. It is around, yeah. Just costs. <laughs> it ain't free. Yeah, well, they're not good that good yet. We got very limited materials to work with in 3D printers.